welcome back for another episode here at Crest Talk. We're your hosts, Jamie Kim, Chloe Lee, and Jamie Freitag. At Crest, we believe everyone deserves support. The Crest app provides personalized support that helps you stress less and accomplish more. If you are new, welcome. We are so glad you are here. We just wanted to reassure you that your hosts are no longer recording in the recording studio, and this is all being recorded over an audio call with everyone in their own respective homes. Today's topic is super interesting. It's going to be about telehealth and virtual learning, just in general, the era of everything moving online and how that's been for everyone. So we'll just be discussing that and talking about our thoughts about it. So for those of you unfamiliar with telehealth, it is the use of digital information and communication technologies, such as computer and mobile devices to access healthcare services remotely and manage your healthcare. With the advent of, you know, obviously an increase in technology, even before the coronavirus, um, patient portals have become kind of a normal thing for your doctor to offer you so that you can have all of your uh, medical records, like pretty much at the touch of a button. Um, and so the Office for Civil Rights has issued guidance to empower healthcare providers to serve patients through telehealth during the national public health emergency. You know, so instead of going into your doctor's office, potentially exposing yourself to coronavirus, you can, in good faith in your house, get telehealth services to yourself. So this has been kind of a huge discussion surrounding HIPAA because, you know, commonly used apps like FaceTime, Facebook Messenger, Google Hangouts, Zoom, Skype, Uvu, for those of you who know what that is, you know, even if the application does not fully comply with the HIPAA rules, it was kind of like overridden for um, this time being, those are allowed to be used. Um, and, you know, I think when people go for telehealth visits and they see their provider at home or something, they might not feel as though they are having 100% private meeting. You know, this is just in my opinion, but this is because they can't see the people off screen of the provider, of the provider's end, and they don't know if, you know, your own family is listening. And I kind of experienced this with my dermatologist. I kind of didn't care because it was my dermatologist. Uh, I just had like a mole checked out, but you know, maybe I, I did care when I had a more personal visit with a provider. And, you know, I really couldn't see who's on the other end with her. And if there's people off camera, like listening to our conversation or something. Right. I feel like the issue of privacy and whatnot isn't really thought of, or how big of an impact that would have on someone. It's not really acknowledged until we all moved on to online. Because when you go for an appointment, you guys don't meet in the lobby and talk about your issues or whatnot or your diagnoses. You go into right. a private room and, you know, it's like, I feel like it's something that now people might even appreciate more or just worry about more because it's like, wow, like we no longer have that. Did that ever impact how you maybe shared information with your provider in any way? Yeah, you know, I can't obviously get into the specifics, but probably um, my conversation is more, uh, you know, inhibited with the provider, you know, rather than uh, a meeting in person where I obviously can see who's in the room with us. It's hard to say, you know, oh, I wouldn't have said this, or I did say this, that kind of specific thing. But definitely, it's in the back of your mind the whole visit. Especially as an overthinker, I'm like, I want to say something that's a really vulnerable detail about me or whatnot. And I'm always going to be like, is someone like sitting in the corner, like listening, because you can't yeah. see that stuff. So I feel like this should be, I know everything's so new, but I feel like it should definitely be an extra step taken. You know how when we take online exams, we have to show the whole room around us. People are not allowed to use scrap paper. And you might think that's extreme, but it's really not because of the extent of cheating and that could happen. So at this, to the same extent, I feel like your privacy is just as important. So I wouldn't even be, I wouldn't even call it extreme if your provider if they are 
able to like even show you the room and be like, it's just us because some people just need that reassurance, especially you don't know their history or, you know, they're yeah. with opening up to people. And of course, this depends for each different specialty or who they're seeing. I, I feel like it's not quote unquote extreme because it's something that you no longer are reassured of. And if you're if you feel inhibited in any way and that affects what you share with your provider, that could also be dangerous in a way to your healing or to your growth. And also your provider wouldn't really be aware of as much as they would have been. So it's crazy how there can be so many different variable factors now after moving online. Right. And that reminds me when I was in school um, during the whole coronavirus thing, my all my professors actually made me um, use a lockdown browser where I would have to show my entire room and my desk. And I remember my whole classmates, like we were all complaining, thinking this was too extreme. But if you think about it, we would shoot, the professors were trying to mimic a real classroom setting and making sure that we don't cheat as if we were in the classroom. I guess it was good because it made us study, like it made all of us study more. But yeah, I agree that it should be as real as possible, the appointments. Yeah, like maybe even for a mental health patients, they wouldn't feel comfortable online because they might be thinking, oh, is somebody listening to this? Right. And if they have things that are really hard to talk about, it might be even harder to talk about it online. Yeah, those are some stuff that I was wondering when I was, you know, um, thinking about the whole telehealth issue. And I also wonder if it affects like psychiatric patients and like other people in therapy, if it's easier for them or harder for them. And also, I think something to consider throughout this whole podcast and this whole topic is that the doctors, the physicians, the people in management are the ones that are purchasing these different types of software and stuff. So they're kind of targeted to be easy to use from the provider side, obviously with the patient in mind, but that's who's ultimately purchasing these, these programs. So they're mainly targeted to physicians to make them more likely to adopt it. Not necessarily ease of use for the patient. We're seeing a wide reaction from patients, mostly based on how comfortable they are with technology. Obviously, younger people um, have grown up with these different technologies and are you know way more uh, used to the fact that, oh, open this tab, click this button, <laughs> which we take for granted sometimes because even a few times I had to help my grandparents out, get connected with their iPad. They're like, what if they didn't have, you know, younger people in their life? Um, and I bet compliance really decreased during the pandemic. That actually reminds me of a story. I was just talking to a friend last week and she was saying how she had to go to the lab to get her blood drawn. And she must have been like the only person under the age of like 70 or 60. And so we have all these elderly patients and it was so crowded. And my friend was like, what is going on? She's my age, by the way, in her 20s. And she realized the new check-in system is online like they have to go to a tablet mm -hmm. and check in and be like reason for visit or like whatnot and there was this huge line and people didn't know how to sign in and there were front desk workers but they weren't really helping they're like you need to sign in over there basically saying that's yeah. not my job um that's the job of the tablet standing in front of you so my friend being the amazing person that she is she took the liberty of standing next to it and she was logging everyone in for them and all these 
like grandmas and grandpas are like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. And they didn't even know, you know, how to type in, you know how sometimes to type in the word, you have to click on the box and then start typing the letters, but Mm -hmm. they didn't select the box and they would just start typing letters and obviously nothing's coming up. So that's also extremely confusing. So she was doing that for every single patient. They were like, oh, do you work here? And she's like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> just, like, it was, isn't that so sad? Like, it's not even a health record thing or anything. It's literally just to sign in and get your name on the list to wait. I just thought that was ridiculous. Thank God she was there, but you're right. Like, not everyone has younger people to surround them and help them out whenever they need. So I do think definitely compliance has decreased and it does decrease the amount of care that people can have access to. Yeah, first of all, that's horrible. Um, I can't imagine a situation where the staff is, you know, not willing to help the elderly population with their tablets or whatever. But I can also I can also see, you know, a lot of truth to that statement where a random patient in the office is, you know, helping other patients because ultimately I feel like that's how dire the situation is because um, you know, even I get confused sometimes like you know, for example, I had um, two providers at the same practice and I had two different logins. And even like, even that confused me because, you know, I even have like the autofill generator on my computer and I, I could not for the life of me figure out how to switch accounts, which just seems like so simple and like so benign. But then think about my mom or dad trying to do that. Forget about my grandparents. So, but obviously that shows, you know, that there's a major problem. Exactly. And something that, in my opinion, can cure this whole technology language barrier um, is literal telephone visits, um, you know, would solve this problem of older people trying to figure out the whole technology. But at the same time, it completely takes away from a physical problem um, if there's anything for the provider to recognize that they're unable to own. In most cases, I feel like this is not a direct um, replacement for the office visit because there's so much um, that your doctor can identify, you know, physically, um, you know, not even to mention like, you know, they take your weight, blood pressure, you know, do any labs. That's obviously impossible over the phone. But in one area, I think that it might be almost uh, equal to an office visit is for therapy. You know, if you already know the therapist, you already built you know, a relationship with them. Um, I think that it can be be beneficial because body language is so important but at the same time it's you know the words that you're saying and you kind of already can can tell what your client or uh, provider is looking like so (laughs) I think it's it's okay in that uh, regard and now that just reminds me of we talk about you know issues of privacy on the side of the provider but what about the side of the patient like not everyone has their own room or their own space and we'll get more about that we'll talk more about that later in terms of education, but I was seeing how there were some problems and there are actually some therapists who come up with methods to, I guess, verbally, they'll ask a question that doesn't seem as personal, like, how was your math quiz? What did you do? But then they'll actually be holding up pieces of paper with actual, and I saw a video on it. So like one therapist, the patient told her, I guess, in some way that her parents were listening through the door, which is obviously horrible. But, you know, that's life. So it's like, how do you go on with that? And so the therapist was asking, how did your math quiz go? But the actual question was, did you talk to your ex? Or like, did you go through what we practiced with the conversation? So it was like, I was really thankful, though, to see that, that there are people who are actively adapting to it and finding new methods just for the sake of privacy. Because privacy, I feel like it's, it does really correlate with someone's improvement and mental health 
So that's just specifically in terms of therapy, though. Yeah, like it might not always be on the provider's side, but there could be many issues on the patient's side as well. Wow, I actually didn't know that. And it must be so difficult because patients now can't be as vulnerable as they were. It must be really hard to adjust from, you know, having those weekly meetings in in like a closed personal private space and then moving to somewhere where you have to kind of even hide that, like hide what you actually want to talk about and use like secret messagings and like holding up questions to help each other and for the therapist to help you declutter your mind and talk about what you really want to talk about. And it just, it's just so much adjusting to this new lifestyle. And wow, I actually didn't know that. That's very interesting. Moving on to the younger generations, research actually shows that the younger generations are more willing to use telehealth, which is honestly not surprising at all. For these younger generations, there's actually this quote-unquote tracking behavior, which is something that's not seen in the other generations. It's because there's, you know, there's more Fitbits and Apple Watches, and there was actually research that showed that younger people, they want to see the progress and they want to see written out goals with immediate feedback. And this was seen to be more quote unquote attractive. So they would enjoy, like even for me, I enjoy the little reminders, you know, like take your pill, like little, you know, quotes that are reminded to me through my iPhone, um, you know, reminders to exercise, eat the right thing. And, you know, that instant feedback. So I can see how younger people are more willing to use telehealth because it helps them feel more in charge of what they're doing and their health, which also feeds into the confidence, which is, you know, always good. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, Chloe, because I use my Fitbit every single day. And something that I never did until, um, you know, I started getting these like tracking apps and everything is your water intake, which, you know, I'm kind of OCD about a little (laughs) now, um, which is (laughs) kind of good, but also kind of bad. But you're so right that other generations never had these quote unquote problems that we're having. Um, But it also, you know, I love what you said about empowering yourself to take your health into your own hands, you know, the things that you can control, um, whether it be like exercise and diet and um, putting all that information together and applying that to your life is awesome. Um, But at the same time, like definitely, you know, the advent of patient portals and everything can create a lot of anxiety on the patient. So there's pros and cons to it, in my opinion. And actually, kind of switching gears a little bit, I was reading a study done by the um, VHA, the Veterans Health Administration. Um, they launched a telehealth program, you know, way before coronavirus, and they found that through the use of telehealth, it reduced admissions by 20% in 2010. I think this is due to all the types of chronic conditions that the older generations, which, you know, probably comprise most of the people that use the VA, their experiences are different necessarily than an acute problem. So patients with diabetes had a 20% decrease in resource utilization. Uh, those with heart failure had a 30% reduction. And most, most important was that those with depression had a 56% reduction. So like I was saying before with the therapy, um, patient satisfaction with telehealth um, in terms of therapy and their mental health, um, you know, really, really reduced the resource allocations that come with an in-person visit. So patient satisfaction remained above 86% and all but 10% of those approached were willing to participate in the program. So I think those people in that 10%, you know, maybe just didn't want to talk about it or, you know, they didn't feel strongly either way. So I think this was a really well done study. Um, 
And they also found that the quality of the interaction was not compromised compared to in-person visits, uh, which was surprising, but good. And for me personally, um, my grandparents have to travel, you know, pretty much over an hour to get to the nearest VA, obviously for um, reduced healthcare, so it's worth it. But at the same time, like things that could be dealt with over the phone, I'm sure that they would like that way better than having to trek out to the other side of Long Island um, every single time. So I definitely, you know, see the validity in uh, patients benefiting from not having to go to extreme uh, distances to get to their nearest VA. So another thing is they don't really um, talk about like the age group of the people in the research project, but um, I would assume though that a lot of them are older just because of the nature of the system. And I think that transportation may have a lot to do with it. And, you know, kind of transitioning to something that I mentioned before, the whole telehealth system must already, you know, try to be incorporated into the same uh, current EMR technology that the doctor is using, um, it would completely streamline the whole process if the same company that dealt with the EMRs would also give the same telehealth system. Um, to make it more simple, if you didn't understand what I just said, basically, all of your health records are through company A, but um, company B is offering the telehealth services where um, you know some providers can take notes on the side of the screen or something. To be a provider and having to switch tabs constantly to look at your patient and then write things down in the EMR and then look at your patient. You know, obviously I've never had to do that before, but I can just see like the complete mess that that can ensue. So in my opinion, it's probably a huge cost. Think about all of the third-party systems right now making it so confusing with the multiple tabs things. You know, unfortunately, obviously the coronavirus hit us, you know, like a ton of bricks. So I think going forward, there's going to have to be some major planning um, in terms of that whole situation. You know, healthcare in general and just dealing with the system has already been confusing as it was before coronavirus. And people struggle with it a lot, especially in terms of technology and whatnot, because it's not like we all of a sudden translated over. Like a lot of things were becoming virtual, a lot of things like the EMRs. So I don't know, just like hearing this makes me sad because I've struggled so much in the past with like my own records. And it, it was such a battle for me to just transfer over records from different physicians. And it's like, I didn't really have a say of where I wanted my records to be and like they wouldn't even be released to me and there are all these regulations and rules and steps so it's just like it to me it just seems like such a big convoluted mess and it's like the worst especially when there's so many different third parties telling you different things and it's like no one really knows what the other person's doing so I feel like that's also a big issue I feel like everyone's just doing their own thing right now especially if you're going around trying to find proper care for different things or, or shift around different physicians and practices. So this just honestly gives me such a huge headache. Telemedicine, it kind of falls in like a gray area in terms of security. And I can see how this is a big con in terms of like, um, like regulatory and stuff like that for the patient. And I could also see how some physicians wouldn't want to go through the troubles or trying to figure out what's needed to meet the telemedicine guidelines for their state. And so like problems in the industry um, with the EHR systems can arise and there could be further complications. Yeah, I just feel like the whole telemedicine tool system is just constantly in a flux almost. So some practitioners are kind of reluctant to even use it. 
And that's just so difficult for the patients because what if they need to see a doctor, but these informations wouldn't transfer over? And even if they give the permission, they need permission from the their doctors. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I just feel like it makes things very complicated. And especially for patients who need immediate treatment, there's just like, like Jamie said, a one big headache. And going back to, um, you know, what I was talking before about the VA research, um, it was interesting that they found a reduction in, you know, their admissions because I wonder if that like is due to infections they would have contracted at the office um, because that's kind of worrisome. Like <laughs> if these people were coming in in person, they'd be admitted, you know, at a higher rate than them just being at home. So hopefully it's not due to the doctors, you know, quote unquote, missing something. Um, it's actually just due to, you know, maybe the stress of traveling there or, you know, a dirty waiting room or, or just a lot of people in a, in a really um, condensed area. So um, yeah, I would, I would like to ask them about that. Yeah, that's a good point. And this is something that popped up in our research. This is a report from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. They said that a large volume of research reported that telehealth interventions produce positive outcomes when used for remote patient monitoring for several chronic conditions and for psychotherapy as part of behavioral health. The most consistent benefit has been reported when telehealth is used for communication and counseling or remote monitoring in chronic conditions such as cardiovascular and respiratory disease with improvements in outcomes such as mortality, quality of life, and reductions in hospital admissions. So what do you guys think about these findings? I feel like for a lot of patients, they wouldn't need to come into the office unless it's like for urgent questions or if they need the doctor to take a deeper examination into whatever they need looked at. Um, for online, I guess a good thing is you can do these things right away. It's very instant. And I feel like in our generation, I know we talked about this before, but we like quick responses. We like instantaneous results. And so I do feel like there's definitely a limit with telehealth in terms of how the professional can treat the patient. If it's more surface level and visible, then it's a lot easier to identify. But if it's like things you need to do scans for, if it's things inside the body, then telehealth, teletherapy would be very hard. So it's like very minor conditions. This morning, actually, um, my dog had like a rash on his belly and we didn't want to go to a vet because, you know, one trip to the vet office is like $200. And, but it was just like, a little rash and we wanted somebody to take a look at it um so my family we like googled and we tried to look up what it was some people said it was very serious it was almost deadly other people said it's just a heat rash um so we were all just like what should we do should we just pay for the vet visit and when i was googling i actually found a 24 7 online service where you can talk to an actual vet it was only five dollars and so i was able to talk to the vet by sending him pictures asked him what it was i sent him my dog's information, how much does he weigh, his name and all that. And he was able to very quickly identify what the condition was. And he sent me like a list of medications I can buy. They were all off the counter and he was so helpful. So I was very amazed at how far telemedicine had come, especially for things that are on surface and very minor. You can just take a picture and send it to your doctor and you're able to get this quick response in terms of emergency. Yeah, and going back to what you said before, Jamie, I definitely like how they worded it um, in terms of behavioral health and communication and counseling for rem remote monitoring. I think that's, you know, so important to draw the distinction because for the things that can be dealt with, um, you know, like for preventative um, measures, 
in this in the today's society there are so many things that we could prevent in terms of illness through diet you know smoking and you know obviously not smoking and um, exercise that it's so important for patients to get that information. And that's something that can be, in my opinion, done over the phone um, completely the same as if it were in an office visit. And now um, to comment on what Chloe said, I think there are definitely pros to this whole situation. I, I know in the past I've been kind of hard <laughs> hard on them, but um, patients <laughs> can conveniently get healthcare, you know, from the comfort of their home. And they have access to specialists or practices that they wouldn't have been able to see for treatment. And, you know, we kind of got to see that um, through our Lennox Hill episode. Like when you look at the patient, we were talking about Mitzi, who traveled from Tennessee, you know, like get a consultation or something. I bet if she emailed her uh, like MRIs to the physicians in New York and then, you know, maybe had like a telehealth meeting with that, I feel like that um, mm-hmm. obviously, and then, you know, not completely replaced the in office, but for th- those specific specialists, I think it could potentially be really helpful for them. Right. Like they, they could have gotten like some like preliminary stuff out of the way or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Even for like speech pathology and speech therapy, telehealth is really huge right now because of the advanced video qualities. And even through Zoom, um, I remember one of my professors, um, she had like a second job where she would meet clients from literally all over the world. And during the office hours, I had a ch- I went to I had a little chat with her, and she was able to show me her system and how she does therapy online. And her video quality was crystal clear. It was as if I was there. And so she was explaining to me how even with therapy, she's able to talk to and meet with people from like Australia and even people you know across the country. And I just thought that was so cool, even with like voice therapy, where the quality of voice is very important for the therapist to examine. Um, There are applications and different programs that allow you to pick up every vibration as if you are in the office. So a lot of therapists were mentioning how they're moving towards teletherapy because it's just so much more easier and patients are able to just kind of sit in the comfort of their home because, you know, they're not talking about anything too serious or like too deep. So stuff like this is very easily done online in front of your computer. That's crazy. I feel like that's one of the things I worry about the most. Not that I'm a patient myself or anything, but when I do think about how everything shifted online, a big thing that I personally think about is quality in terms of hearing or even visuals. And just the fact that you brought up that you really felt like you were in the room with her, it was super advanced too. And picking up of every small vibration, I think that's crazy because if you have crappy quality, it's common sense. Like, how is that going to help you or the provider? It's so stressful. That's really interesting. I didn't know that. It's actually been one of my, I guess, like worries, I guess, when I just think about all this. I'm just like, I hope that they found something to complement the system and have things work out. So yeah, that's actually pretty awesome. Something I actually just thought of, as you said that, Jamie, was (laughs) say you're in a big uh, medical office and all of a sudden every single doctor is streaming video to um, their patients at the same time. Like, I just wonder how that affects the quality. Yeah, I didn't even think about that before. Um, But maybe despite that, um, telehealth and education ends up being cost efficient in in the long run because For both patients and providers, um, it's a less expensive alternative method. And this is from a study from Harvard Medical School found that a visit to the doctor costs the patient about $43, you know, every time you wait for the doctor. So they calculated how many minutes patients spend seeking medical care 
and the dollar value of their lost time. And ultimately, that's kind of um, decreased with telehealth because obviously you're not waiting in a waiting room, you're waiting at your house. Unfortunately, no one's in there taking your vitals, so that kind of cuts out the medical (laughs) system part. But um, if someone has a chronic condition that they're always paying their co-pays, they have monthly appointments, they have weekly appointments, whatever it is, it might be a huge benefit for them to not, you know, have to come to the office every week. And they can have more frequent appointments um, in that respect. Right. Like whether it be paying for public transportation or ride services or gas even, because that's a big concern too, especially with people who have chronic conditions, they have to have constant care for the rest of their lives. Money is a huge thing. That's definitely a big factor when it comes even like if you want to even receive care or not. We know a lot of people who don't want care because they're like, oh, I can't pay for that. So I feel like this can definitely be, this is a huge pro for a lot of people in that situation. And that's something where I feel like it does increase access to a lot of people who need it. So now we'll actually be shifting more to distance learning. We will be entering, you know, the world of academia. And this is something that we can really hone in on because we're all students and we've experienced this firsthand. So just to recap, when coronavirus hit, all students were obviously sent back home and that didn't matter where home was for you. If it was in a completely different country or across the country from where you were, you were just sent back home. And so that began. And then I remember actually, I was in a group chat with one of my friends we're in New York, so she had to move back home to California, and she was like, I woke up at 6 a.m. today to make it to my 9 a.m. Zoom class, and I was like, holy crap, I didn't even think of that. I have friends who are literally 15 hours ahead, 12 hours ahead, and I don't even know how they're doing this. I know even friends who were studying abroad but then came back home, so some of them have to wake up at 4 a.m. to make class, and you could argue, like, it's recorded. But first of all, not every single class is recorded. A lot of teachers don't know how to. Some honestly don't want to. They don't want to go through that hassle. And that's a fact. But second, even if it is recorded, especially if you, you know you don't care about your studies, it's hard for you to know that, oh, while I'm sleeping and dreaming of my favorite food, there's a whole world out there. All my classmates are actively learning and they get to ask questions. Even asking questions has been so hard for a lot of us. We have to send an email every time and wait a couple of days for a response. So it's ridiculous how there's so many people around the world who are waking up at such odd times and it can really mess with their sleep cycle too. Even just traveling back home, if you're in a different time zone, I feel like that's a lot to deal with. It's crazy how even with all of this change that we honestly do see that professors' expectations of us don't change. But that was just something that I wanted to bring up to, I guess, open up the discussion. Right. And, you know, well, I'm so lucky that I live in the same area as my school because ultimately that is such a real problem for everyone because, you know, I'm sure, yeah, obviously, like there are exceptions that can be made. But if you were, uh, if you attend a really large university, I feel like you kind of get swallowed up. But, you know, something that I do deal with is the increased screen time. Um, you know, it's affecting my physical activity uh, and I can tell through my Fitbit, but I don't walk across campus which, you know, kind of is also like a break for me too in between classes. Like now it's like, you know, my teachers keep me 10 minutes after because they're aware that I don't have to walk to my next class. And, um, you know, they kind of take advantage of that. Not anymore because it's summer, but, you know, when we were in school, I heard something that, you know, we could spend up to 10 hours a day on our computer. Think about how most classes are like 
an hour and a half, two hours long, you know, some even longer, uh, you know, talking about labs and stuff. But then you have to study and write papers, the screen time that you, you know, normally have during the regular year. So um, I think that's going to have major impacts <laughs> on our generation, uh, you know, that we're not necessarily considering with this whole teleeducation thing. And speaking of screen time, I also felt like when we were in our homes, it it was really hard to learn properly. I don't know. I don't know about you guys, but I had too much control over what I can absorb and what I chose not to learn. So I was able to kind of skip through things I didn't want to listen to. But what if they were important? I mean, they're clearly there for a reason. And when, you know, the coronavirus started and we had to all resort to online learning, I started to miss that, like, quote unquote, college life, where I can just stay up in the library studying or working on a paper, cramming for a test with your friends. But instead, I was just dreading it by myself at home. Um, so it definitely did affect my sleep time, my sleep, sleep schedule. And even just the way that I learn, it was very hard for me to process everything because I honestly felt no urgency to learn or even study sometimes because I was so comfortable and stuck at home. I definitely agree with um, all of that. And I actually just read a book called um, The Body, A Guide for Occupants. Um, really good. Maybe I'll make a cross wreck of it. And it really <laughs> focused in one chapter um, about extended sitting and how that really affects lifespan. Um, you know, they even found that no matter, you know, you could run a marathon in the morning, but then if you sit for more than six hours a day, it takes a real, real effect in, in terms of like lifespan. So, um, you know, even just getting up in between commercials, they said, um, while watching TV had a positive effect. So I honestly can't believe how much is taken away from walking across campus a few times a day. And, you know, this is because like extended periods of sitting, which they found, you know, the most harmful. It's It sounds, you know, kind of dumb, but Getting up and walking, what is it, the quarter of a mile to your next class. To me, you know, the way they framed it in the book was it was really beneficial to us. And I guess just to branch off of the more negative impacts of distance learning and just being on your computer all day, a lot of sleep doctors have actually come out and voiced their concerns because of the increased time spending absorbing and looking at blue light from all of your screens, your computers, your laptops, your tablets. Because this blue light, obviously, it's bad for your eyes, and it also can suppress your nocturnal melatonin secretion, and this will alter your circadian rhythm. So that will affect your sleep cycle. And this is kind of, I guess, quote-unquote old news, but we also know that increased screen time, especially right before you go to bed, will make it harder for you to fall asleep. Again, not true for everyone, but that is what research has showed. It's hard because I know a lot of people have the habit of turning on something before they go to bed and it helps them fall asleep or whatnot. But either way, blue light is blue light and it's not good for you. Yeah, there are a lot of sleep doctors that have emphasized this point. And a lot of doctors try to offer tips here and there, like how to unwind before bed, turn the screen off, read a book, listen to music. That's harder these days because normally these days, we know that how we unwind is Netflix, YouTube, watching movies. But now it's worse because the way that we study now and the way that we learn is no longer in a classroom. It is also looking at a screen. So it's even like your way of relaxing just adds on top to the amount of screen time. So it's so difficult. And that just, I feel like, exacerbates the situation. And it's also really hard to want to pick up a book after a long day of doing work. It's just, we talked about this before, you know, it does require more focus. You can't really multitask if you wanted to. It's difficult. 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. For me personally, it's so hard. It's such a hard habit to pick up. Something that I'm always trying to reset and relearn to do to read a book instead of watching Netflix. But I have to say, it's it's just so much harder because my whole day revolves around me looking at a screen, whether you know it's an internship or even work or schooling. Everything, even my entertainment, comes from the screen. We're just constantly feeding ourselves into. Like watching things, and I actually learned this in psychology class. But when we sit in front of our screens, it tricks our bodies to believe that it's still daytime. So because of the light that's kind of like coming in, right. so then when we go to sleep, it obviously makes it harder for her to go to sleep.、Um, sometimes I don't even know what time of the day it is because I just keep watching like one more episode, one more episode, and I look at the time, and like a whole hour has gone by because our days are so long, stuck at home. We think this is okay, and then you know it turns into a bad habit, and that affects our sleep. And something that、um, I've noticed in my personal life is the difficulty to create like that sleep environment. Because in the past, I would do a hundred percent of my work at school, and then my bedroom would be for sleeping and for like relaxing. Now that the tables have completely changed on that, and I can definitely see it affecting my sleep because. Um, you know, I guess I feel like I'm more like alert at night because I made you know my bedroom that work study space that it never ever was in the past. So in my personal life, I felt like I was doing a good job with you know separating work and personal life, but ultimately I had no choice in this. So the distraction-free environment at the library is really good. Another thing with that is you know the large and loud families. I don't have necessarily a large family, but I think everyone's family can get a little loud at sometimes.、Right. So. There's just a lot of issues with moving your、um, whole work life into your bedroom. And Jamie, I love that you brought up the point of how you had designated zones for okay, this is for work, and you know my bed is for relaxing and sleep because that's really important, and that that does play a huge mental toll on how you focus and how you study and even how you absorb information. So there's, I feel like there is a huge mental aspect of being able to have your own space, and a lot of Students don't have the luxury; they don't have an office or a study room, and some, a lot of family members, you know, share rooms too. It's also hard because we all have that one student in class in a Zoom meeting where, like, a family member walks in or like blurts something out loud, and it's like kind of funny, but you understand. It's like frustrating sometimes, and you don't really have your own space, and that really does take a toll on how you can work. It's hard for me because personally, we have a lot of professors who, who in my life, who are super understanding, and it's great. They're brilliant at their job, and they understand that we no longer have dorms or libraries or study spaces. But then you have the other half, who we even have a professor, Jamie and I, who doubled or even tripled our workload, and it was kind of as if he was trying to like compensate for the fact that we didn't have to go to class in real life.、Yeah. Right. If that makes sense, it's kind of like, oh well,、um, since there's like minus ten on the amount of time that you walked class, I guess we can do more work, you know? <laughs> like, what the heck is this? Like, yeah. Yeah, you know, like what are you doing? Like just because we don't have to walk a few steps or commute, we deserve more work, and it was pretty disgusting to live through. But I don't know. What are your guys' thoughts about that? Yeah, I actually just had a complete flashback of what you just said with that those teachers. So even in one specific time, we asked him for an extension on a paper, and he he was like, "Well,、um, I've been ending lab early, so you should have been using that time to." 
<laughs> so yeah, I completely agree with what you said, Jamie. And you know, there are some a lot of professors that understand, but then there are those few bad eggs that uh, just kind of didn't understand the whole situation. Yeah. Right. Those are the professors that think we have no life outside of their class. So they just give us more and more work. Um, for one of my classes, we had the lockdown browser again for our final. And there was actually this one incident where one of my classmates moved out of the frame for some reason, or she like dropped her pencil and she had to go pick it up. And the test kind of determined that she was cheating and she got in a lot of trouble for that. So to avoid those type of situations, we the entire class emailed my professor asking to take down the lockdown browser for the final exam and to find an alternative way. And one of my classmates, she's actually a mother, and she was saying how her kids are constantly coming in and out of the class, in, in and out of the room, and they're just banging on her door. They're very young. And so we told our professor, um, she said no, she still made us use a lockdown browser, but she was very understanding about it. She said that she'll allow us to have people, you know, go in and out of the room as long as our eyes are glued to the test. And that definitely added a lot of emotional stress for me because. I don't have a big family either, but they're constantly coming into my room. They're like, what are you doing? Do you want dinner? Do you want this and this and that? Um, also, my Wi-Fi is really bad sometimes. And I don't want my professors to think that that's an excuse for me not doing my work or having my exam shut down. So I just remember it was so stressful. Um, it was more than just doing the assignments, but it was also thinking about all these technical stuff like what if it doesn't get delivered? What if you know, my test gets shut down? What if I missed a deadline? Um, I do understand that the professors are trying to mimic the classroom environment as much as they can to minimize che cheating. But let me tell you, I was really stressed out trying to figure out, like trying to make sure that every, I was on top of everything, making sure that my environment was like a real classroom. And just to emphasize Chloe's point more, I remember Chloe telling me like, my eyeballs are burning. Imagine taking an exam and you can't, well, I don't know about you guys, but for me, like in a regular classroom setting, I will literally just like stare at the teacher, the wall, <laughs> like my neck will be hurting because I'm writing so much. And I'll like occasionally look up if I have like snot running down my nose, I got a sniff, I'll like, you know, move around. And Chloe's telling me like, if you take your eyes off the screen, it must mean you're cheating, even though you've shown that your room is bare and empty of notes or whatever form of cheating there is. So just imagine taking a test and like, you cannot move your eyes and you cannot look anywhere but your screen i can't even imagine the amount of stress like i would not feel comfortable at all and i would probably honestly fail every single test if i don't feel comfortable and i'm more worried about how i look than me responding to the actual question right but i i kind of cut the teacher some slack because as much as this was a surprise to all of us you know as a surprise to them they're still trying to you know maintain the integrity of their tests so it really isn't a good answer like obviously it's ridiculous to just stare at the screen when you don't even do that in real class so ugh, there is no good answer um but i definitely know that um if i were in that situation it would completely affect my testing ability um just because it's so restrictive and i don't do well under <laughs> restrictions at all so um it definitely, you know, affected people's grades, and I, I hope professors understood that. Yeah, but also, I thought about this after my semester ended, but what if, like, everybody cheated? Um, how can real learning take place if everybody, you know, took tests with open notes? Like, 
for people who are going into healthcare or people in med school, they need to really know their stuff. And if they were constantly, you know, looking at their notes and taking exams as if they weren't like, quote unquote, the real thing, then how would they truly learn? And I feel like, especially for med students, they have to constantly, constantly be quizzed so that they can learn to think on their toes for when they're actually thrown into the real world. And if everything was online, how can they do this? I know that for me, if if I was able to look at my notes, I wouldn't be as motivated to study and really take in everything as if I would get tested in the classroom. But honestly, I I hate both. <laughs> I hate the online and I hate the classroom. Like we all hate tests, but I do think that it's important for people to be tested, even if they're not in the classroom. Yeah, I know definitely it, it is the you know one thing thing driving your motivation pretty much to study, you know, other than if you have personal motivations, which is amazing, but um, for, I I, I think a lot of us, but overall, I feel like remote learning just um, kind of opened a window for some professors to act and think irrationally. Um, But, you know, I also see this even outside of the college, uh, college and, you know, the whole learning atmosphere. And, you know, even just in an online workplace is that bosses and teachers just expect you to be available 24-7 24-7 since, oh, you're just at home. Oh, you didn't have to commute today. Like, we, we talked about that a little bit before. But um, asking employees to do work outside of normal working hours, like, it's nothing, you know, simply because they feel like it's not a big deal to them. That's horrible because definitely, you know, the mindset, especially during the intense quarantine um, a couple months ago, like, oh, well, what else are you doing? So that kind of mindset, I think, was um, definitely prevalent, which is completely unhealthy. I actually have like a funny story related to this. So my friend has a co-op, obviously it's remote, so it's online. And her designated days for working are Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But her boss schedules all their meetings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So she's basically like, she's like, what? I'm not working today. So it's like, like, yeah, basically be in work mode five days a week when you know what she's getting paid for or what she's getting recognition for is three times a week so she's like you know when i'm supposed to work why are you scheduling our meetings it's like team meetings it's important but it's like why does it have to be that day so it's like it sucks because in now instead of you being mentally prepared like oh i only work three times a week you know scheduling other things you now have to treat it like you don't have breaks in between. And I thought that was funny though. It's like, I, I would think it's common sense for your boss to be like, oh, this person works me three times a week these days. So I should respect that. But yeah. I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us today in this discussion with telehealth and teleeducation. There's definitely advantages and disadvantages when it comes to technology. But if you do want to consider telemedicine as an option, we hope that this was insightful and hopefully interesting for you. Be well, and we'll catch you guys next time on Crest Talk.